Come on, grab a seat. Um, one thing is that we'll start with prayer, and one thing I'd like to ask somebody to pray. Bruce, would you pray when we start uh, for David? Uh, Laura's grandmother died this week. So if you've, if you've been paying attention, you realize, hey, we're not, what happened to Deuteronomy? Well, David had already prepared Deuteronomy, and rather than just me teaching his material or whatnot, we just figured I'll, I'll go ahead and we'll switch, switch weeks. Um, and so uh, David's in Birmingham and Laura and the kids, and um, her grandmother died. She was in her 90s, Christian lady, good life, but we still want to be praying for, for David and Laura. Bruce, would you pray for them? Amen. Thanks, Bruce. So how's everybody doing with your Bible reading? This is Eat This Book. Are you eating it? Are you reading? How's your reading? Okay. Well, yes, uh, we, did, we did skip Deuteronomy. We'll come back to Deuteronomy. We're not ignoring Deuteronomy. Uh, David will probably talk about this in his lesson, but I think it's arguable that Deuteronomy was Jesus' favorite book. Uh, he at least he quotes and alludes to Deuteronomy more than any other book in the Old Testament. Did you know that? I'm sure David will elaborate on that when he comes back. But how are you doing in your Bible reading? Give yourself a letter grade. F being just not doing it at all. A being I'm after it every day. I'm reading, praying. What would you give yourself? A number one, well, do you go to like one of those Montessori schools? Uh, okay. okay. Well, I don't know if that's good or bad, but uh, okay, good. So you're reading it every day? Some guys reading, reading yours every day? What are, you, what are you reading right now? Where are you in the book? Oh, cool. Kings and Hebrews. That's good. About some some of the rest of y'all. Where are you in the book? John three, good. Ezra, so you're reading Ezra. Proverbs and Psalms and Colossians, good. I I just started the New Testament this week. I'm doing a chronological Bible reading, so I was I'm always interested to see how they put those books in terms of the order and chronology. They had Malachi before Joel, and then Joel was the last book of the Old Testament Then it had you read. And then it jumps ahead, of course, to you know the early events of the life of Jesus. And so now we just had, this morning, Jesus tempted in the wilderness. So that was that's kind of where I am in the story. And then I imagine it's going to jump over to the Sermon on the Mount and then the Sermon on the Plain. So there's a little bit of duplication when it does it that way because it's you're reading kind of the same events on, sometimes on the same day. 
But I think it's interesting it's, it's to see how the different writers address the same events, you know, the similarities and maybe some of the differences. So anyway, also, yay, we're passing this book around. So if you didn't get a chance to sign up yet, do that. The ladies in the office very much appreciate when we do that. Well, like we said, we're going to jump in with Joshua today. Now, before we get to the book of Joshua, I want to take a quick poll to gauge your readiness for the book of Joshua. Are you ready? Okay. What is your favorite Olympic sport? Is it A, ice dancing, or B, ice hockey? Hockey? We got some hockey fans. Ice dancing or ice hockey? Okay. What about this? Uh, favorite soldier? Would it be Alan Alda from MASH or Arnold Schwarzenegger from Commando? I'm hearing some Schwarzenegger. I'm hearing some Alan Alda. Okay. Uh, favorite McLean? Shirley from Terms of Endearment or... John from Die Hard. John? Okay, no, no Shirley MacLaine fans. Okay. Well, if you answered B to any or all of the poll questions this morning, you are going to be a big fan of the book of Joshua. Joshua is the biblical equivalent to Braveheart. The book, especially the first 12 chapters, is loaded with action. It is an action book. Now, when the book of Deuteronomy ends, and again, David will tackle that next week when he returns, the people are on the edge of the promised land. Moses has died, and he has appointed Joshua to be his successor to lead the people into the promised land. Again, David will talk about this, but we alluded to it before, that, uh, da- that Moses had famously or infamously uh, struck the rock from which the water came out. God was very angry with him. Uh, David had a, a very helpful imp, uh, explanation of that last week. He was essentially redoing um, this this sacrifice in a way of you know saying that the rock needed to be sort of punished twice, sort of a double atonement. You can go listen to him about that. But he did he did struck the rock twice. He said God said you're not entering the promised land. And so Joshua is appointed to be his successor. Now the question is, what will happen? Will God continue to be faithful to his people? Will he continue to fulfill his promises? The book of Joshua answers that question. The people are free, but they've been promised a land of their own. Will God be faithful and give them the land in spite of the seemingly insurmountable odds which they face? The answer plays out in front of our eyes through a series of memorable characters and events. In addition to Joshua himself, the book of Joshua also features the following memorable characters. We have Caleb, a young spy who, as the Doc Holliday to Joshua's Wyatt Earp, refuses to cower in the face of the powerful armies who roam the land of Canaan. When they went out to spy out the land, do you remember what uh, Joshua and Caleb said? Twelve spies, ten of them said one thing. What did the ten say? They're too big. We'll we'll never do it. We can never win. And what did Joshua and Caleb say? He says, the Lord is with us. And we're going to take the land and we're going to conquer it. So this is Caleb. He was allowed to enter 
with Joshua into the promised land. We meet Rahab, a prostitute turned hero who used her wiles to help two Israelite spies escape capture. We meet Achan, a thief who betrays his army by disobeying God only to be discovered and executed. Do you remember that story? The story of Achan? He took the plunder when God said, don't take the plunder. He, di he died, executed because of that. In addition to the famous Battle of Jericho, the book of Joshua also featuring, features the following memorable events. We have the miraculous crossing of the Jordan River. We have a scene in which a bunch of stone-faced warriors in an age long before pain medication were circumcised with flint knives. Ouch. We have a scene where a band of Gibeonites dress like beggars, and negotiate a dishonest treaty with Joshua. Do you remember that story? They sort of put on costumes and said, oh, please make a treaty with us. Joshua went with it, and it was a big mistake. There's a scene in which the sun stands still so that all the Israelites don't need to take a break from routing their enemies. You remember that story? The sun stands still. So where do we begin with this, one of the most memorable and action-packed books of the Old Testament? Is this just a comic book account, or is there a deeper message, a message that we as God's people can't afford to miss? Well, we begin with the historical background of the book. What do we know about the story behind the story of Joshua? Historical background. The book of Joshua was written by an anonymous author. While the story is about God leading the people into the promised land through the leadership of Joshua, Joshua is never identified as the author of the book. So we simply don't know who wrote it. Continue the historical background. The recurring phrase, to this day, occurs 11 times in the book of Joshua, suggesting a time lapse of a, between the events themselves and the writing of the book. So, for example, somebody read Joshua 4, verse 9. So again, that suggests a little bit of a time lapse between the events described in the book and the time of the people who were first reading the book. It would almost be like, well, you know, after such and such battle of the Civil War, we set up this monument, and that monument has been there to this very day. We assume that there's some time lapse between the battle, the monument, and where we are as readers or observers of the monument today. Okay, based on the Bible's own dating, the conquest of Canaan took place roughly 1400 B.C. Fun fact, this was Joe Biden's first year in the Senate. Just kidding, Joe Biden. We love you, old guy. Just a brief note, you may encounter some popular level arguments on things like the History Channel or the National Geographic Channel that say the conquest of the promised land happened much later and perhaps not at all based on archaeological evidence of destruction layers. Again, you sort of, if you watch these popular level histories on television, they'll say, well, this didn't really happen. It was kind of a myth. 
But there is evidence, however, archaeological evidence, that the walls of Jericho fell before the city was burned, just as the book of Joshua records. Other cities mentioned in the conquest do, in fact, have lack destruction layers because those cities were not destroyed. In the Bible's account, only the cities of Jericho, Ai, and Hazor were completely destroyed, which is why we would be surprised to find archaeological evidence for raised cities. Does that follow? Do you, does that make sense what I'm saying? So these people are saying, well, oh, hey, listen, we've looked at all these cities and we don't find any evidence that these cities were raised to the ground, as the Bible says. Well, the Bible doesn't say that all of the cities were raised to the ground. In fact, only three cities were raised to the ground. And so we would not expect to find these destruction layers of the archaeology because the Bible's account is accurate. Okay, historical background. At the end of the day, it's very difficult to date any historical event that long ago with absolute certainty. There are disputes among even secular archaeologists about where the cities are located. I, for example, and what constitute evidence of conquest, burning, broken down walls, etc., the best sort of dating of the historical events from the ancient world that we have are the ancient historical documents. We have that in the form of the Bible. So I say all this to let you know that you can trust the Bible as an accurate record of what took place uh, in the ancient world. Uh, what you have in your hand is trustworthy and reliable, and you should go to it. Even though it's not mainly a, a book of archaeological history or, and all this, it is an accurate representation of what took place as the people of Israel conquered the promised land. Okay, literary analysis, meeting Joshua. You might be surprised to know that we meet Joshua long before the book of Joshua begins. He's first mentioned way back in Exodus chapter 17 when Moses had him fight with Amalek. In that battle, Joshua defeated Amalek by the power of God. Who here remembers the story? We'll tell the story in a minute. You remember that story? Joshua fighting Amalek? What happened? Something very famous. Exodus 17. Yes! Yep, did you hear that from Frank? It was the story where Moses basically stood on the side of a hill above the battle, and he held his hands up to the Lord, and as long as his hands were raised, the Israelites would be winning the battle. And then when his uh, arms fell down a little bit, they would start to lose. Well, Joshua was the one who was leading the charge, fighting that battle, and bonus, do you know, who were the two people that held up Moses' hands? Do you remember? Aaron, who was his brother, and another guy named Hur, H-U-R, Hur. So they held his arms up in the battle. Well, we, the next slide relates to that, so that's, that's what happened. Now, we read in Exodus 24 that Joshua was Moses' assistant, a statement that is echoed in Joshua 1, verses 1 and 2. Somebody read that. Joshua 1, 1 and 2.
Now, I include that detail just so that you never underestimate the significance of assistant pastors. If, uh, if you wake up one morning and Pastor David is marching around your house uh, playing music or something, just beware, you know, that you never know what's going to happen. Be nice to Pastor David and Pastor Sean, their great assistants, as was Joshua. Now, we know that Joshua was a young man. We read that in Exodus 33, verse 11, early in his career as Moses' assistants. I note this because it's important to remember that young people can be used in very significant ways in the community of faith. As the scriptures say in 1 Timothy 4, verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So young people can be used in mighty ways in the hand of God because it's not about them. It's about the spirit of God who lives within them as he lives within each of us. Okay, in Numbers chapter 13 and 14, Joshua was one of the spies sent out to spy out the land of Canaan. While the other spies said the land is, full, is good, flowing with milk and honey, but the people who live there are giants. There's no way that we can take them down. Joshua and Caleb disagreed. They said, memorably, Numbers 14, 7 through 10. Somebody read that. Great speech. Mm. I had a note, a quick aside. This is the believed to be the first ever recorded congregational meeting. Uh, and it almost ended with the death of two of the pastors of the church. So keep that in mind. Uh, we have very peaceful congregational meetings around here, and we should be grateful. Especially me, as I'm the one most likely to die. Okay. We also know that Joshua was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, that's an interesting detail because we don't have the complete outpouring of the Holy Spirit until Acts chapter 2. So it's important to know that he was a spirit-filled young man who became a, a mature leader of Israel. Numbers 27, 18, we read, So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit. And lay your hand on him. Good leaders are filled with the Holy Spirit. Good leaders can accomplish great things, not in their own strength, but in the strength of the Holy Spirit. And so when I just say this as an aside, as we think about elders in the church and deacons in the church and teachers in the church and Sunday school leaders and Bible study leaders, what we're looking for is not necessarily the person with the most charisma or the most natural talent, the biggest, the strongest, the most handsome or beautiful. What we're looking for is someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, 12 men filled with the Holy Spirit, 12 apostles turned the world upside down. So the Spirit of God is what really makes the difference. 
Okay, literary analysis, meeting Joshua. In the book of Joshua, Joshua is the literary bridge between Israel's wilderness wanderings and the narrative of struggles in the early years of occupying the land, which we find in the book of Judges. So Joshua is kind of a bridge group, a bridge book separating those two, those two major epics in the life of Israel. In chapters 1 through 12, we have a series of military conquests. This section includes the story of Rahab, a prostitute who hid two spies when they went out to spy in the land of Jericho. Because of this great act of faith, Rahab is remembered in the New Testament as an ancestor of Christ. She's included in Christ's genealogy, Matthew 1.5, and an example of faith. She's mentioned in Hebrews 11:31 and an example of good works. She's fe- featured in James chapter 2 verse 25. So Rahab, very significant character in the life of the church. In this section with Salty the singing songbook nowhere to be found, the people of Israel crank up the volume and knock down the walls of Jericho by blowing trumpets and shouting. Even in the director's cut, Salty the Singing Songbook never kills anyone in a whole town with his music. Anyone familiar with that? That's kind of an 80s reference. If you were an 80s kid, you grew up with Salty the Singing Songbook. Maybe your kids grew up with it, or grandkids. I don't know. Who knows? Okay, chapter 1 through 12, we have military conquests. Israel suffers their first defeat in this section. The first major instance of covenant breaking in the promised land. Somebody read Joshua 7, verse 11. So this is a major event in the history of Israel. We have our first covenant breaking, breaking faith with God in the New Test- in the uh, promised land. Excuse me. They are defeated by Ai, and it's discovered that Achan has taken some of the spoils of war rather than destroying everything that that was there. Achan was stoned to death, and they set up a monument to remember that God is not only merciful, we see that in the story of Rahab, but God is holy. We are to obey the commandments of the Lord. Very serious. Now, in Joshua 10, there's a great battle where the sun stood still. We talked about that earlier. The account closes with these amazing verses. Someone read Joshua 10, 13b through 14. Isn't that, a, isn't that an incredible statement? Never a day before or since. Incredible. All right, in this section, we move from, in chapters 13 through 22, we move from the battles to distributing the land. In this section, we move from achieving what was promised to enjoying what God was promised. Whereas the first section is very action-packed, this section is a little bit more like an administrative account. Okay, but 
It isn't all paperwork in this section. Joshua 20 makes provisions for cities of refuge, where a person could go if he accidentally killed someone who was being pursued by, wait for it, the Avenger of Blood. Exciting stuff. Each family in Israel had a goel, who is sometimes called a redeemer or a kinsman redeemer or an avenger of blood. If someone in your clan was killed, the goel's job was to get justice by killing the murderer. The city of refuge was a place where a man who took a life accidentally could receive mercy and the goel could still maintain the honor of the wronged family. Hey, he tried to kill you. The elders of the city of refuge just wouldn't give you up. So that's the goel. Who can think of probably the most famous goel in the Bible, the most famous kinsman redeemer? You know? Boaz. So Boaz was a kinsman redeemer. Okay? All right. Chapters 23 and 24 function as a covenant epilogue. In Joshua's final recorded act, he leads the people in a covenant renewal ceremony. Joshua recounts all that God did to deliver them out of Egypt and how he gave them victory in the promised land. He then closes with a stirring call to faithfulness and a warning that if the people reject God, they will be driven out of the land. Somebody read Joshua 24, verses 14 through 16. Great stuff. How many of you have had or do have or have known of someone who has that, that quote, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord? That comes from the book of Joshua and this famous uh, covenant renewal ceremony. Let's keep reading verses 17 and 18. So good. So why do we serve the Lord? Why do we obey the voice of God? What is the foundational principle for our obedience? The covenant, and specifically, what about the covenant? You're right, but keep going with it. He is our God. We are his people. A God who... Right, a God who delivers us, a God who rescues us. And so when we seek to obey the Lord our God, we do so in response to God's grace. See, we see this very clearly in the New Testament, especially in the epistles. 
the clearest example of this is the book of Ephesians, where the first, it's a six-chapter book. The first three chapters focus almost exclusively on the grace of God. The next chapters, four, five, and six, focus on how we respond and live in light of the grace of God. So we might think of it this way. First comes the indicative, what God has done. God has delivered you, period. Second comes the imperative. This is what you must do because of what God has done. First comes grace, then comes gratitude. And I point this out because this is not an invention of the New Testament church, as if God were somehow uh, doing something completely different in the New Testament. This is as old as the ancient history of Israel. Who can think of another example in the scriptures where grace comes before gratitude? Where what God has done comes before what we must do. I'm thinking of a famous passage, but can you think of any examples of this? First commandment, it, which says... Right? So in case you didn't hear, the Ten Commandments begins with a historical prologue of God's deliverance. I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Therefore, implied, you shall have no other gods before me. And he continues on with the rest of the Ten Commandments. But again, grace comes first. Okay, let's keep reading. Next two verses. 19 and 20. Such a great speech. Hmm. Now that's a, that's, you would probably get mad at me if I ended the sermon that way, right? And that's not very encouraging, is it? Hey, listen, uh, here's everything you're supposed to do, and you won't be able to do it, and God's probably going to strike you dead. So have a great week. You know, we'll see you next Sunday. <laughs> what, what, what is the significance of this statement? It's in the, it's in the scripture. It's God's word. Why would this be included? What, what is Joshua trying to tell the people? Yes, there's a consequence for their sins. Repentance. Why would you say that, Dan? You're, I think you're right, but keep, keep going. Yeah, I think he's kind of, he's sort of uh, poking a, a needle in their balloon of triumphal Christian living, if you will. And now it's, it's sort of an anachronism because this is Old Testament. But... I think we're often tempted to believe, hey, listen, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord and we'll do it and we've got this. And that can so easily lead to complacency. It can so easily lead us to just wander blindly into sin and death and destruction. And so we need God's grace. Even on the other side of the Jordan River in the promised land, we always need God's grace. 
The people were ultimately unable to keep their end of the covenant. They disobeyed and they were exiled from the land. This is a major theme in the prophets, lamentations, and the books of Kings and Chronicles. The good news is that the people of Israel were not ultimately consumed. The exile was not an everlasting separation from God. They broke the covenant at Sinai, but God kept the previously ratified covenant that he had made with Abraham. Do you know where, where in the New Testament does it talk about God not annulling a covenant that he had previously made with Abraham. Anyone know? The book of Galatians. Yes, our favorite book. Galatians 3, 17 and 18. Somebody read this. Incredible. So does that make sense, what I'm saying? See, the, he, they said, hey, serve, choose this day who you will serve. They said, we'll serve the Lord. Did they serve the Lord? No, it was a disaster. I mean, it, and it, again, as you get into the book of Kings and you see one king after the other, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And we'll see this in the book of Judges as, you know, the first judge is kind of a, you know, clean cut, all American, you know, good guy. And then we get to Samson who's, with the prostitutes, and it, it's a, it kills himself. It's a mess. So it keeps getting worse and worse and worse, and eventually the people did suffer a consequence for their sin. What was the consequence for the people of Israel for breaking this, this covenant, for not doing all that God had commanded them to do? What was the, pro, the curse? Exile. Sent to Babylon, the Assyrians overran the northern kingdom the Babylon, in 722 B.C. In 586, the Babylonians carried the rest of the guys away. We get the stories of, of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. All this happens during the exile. But ultimately, God's grace, the covenant of grace which he made with Abraham, was never annulled. God would still be faithful and gracious to his people. Even though we broke the law and do continue to break the law in many, many ways, God remains gracious and faithful because his mercy is not based on his response to us. It's based on his commitment to us, unilateral, the covenant of grace. Okay, continuing on with the covenant epilogue. So if the covenant of grace was the first and controlling covenant, Abraham, why this covenant of works tied to the land? Why do you think? Why was the law given if the people could never keep it, as Joshua himself acknowledges in this section? To prepare the way for Christ. What do you, you're right. Keep going. What does that mean? How does the law... Prepare us for Christ. Right. So if we can't, we can't keep the law, we need something else. What is that something else that Jesus gives us? What role does Jesus play for us that we might be reconciled to God? Sacrificial lamb, mediator. Where do we... 
He kept the law perfectly good. Now, where might we go in the New Testament to hear the answer to this question? The book of Galatians! Of course, the book of Galatians. Where else would you go but the book of Galatians? Somebody read Galatians 3, 24 through 29. I wish you could see the goosebumps on my arm. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that such an amazing promise? Okay, continuing on, the book ends with a hint of the troubles to come in the book of Judges. Whereas Deuteronomy ended with a clean transfer of power from Moses to Joshua, Joshua doesn't name his successor. Somebody read Joshua 17.6. Judges 17.6, excuse me. Famous pa- mm. So Joshua, by not planning a successor, in me- humanly speaking, set the stage for this disaster, which happens in the book of Judges, where people just kind of do whatever they think is right, and uh, they're the king of their own mind, and they're king of their own little world, and it's a mess. So... History repeats itself. It does. It absolutely does. These are universal truths. Okay, let's look at some theological themes from the book of Joshua. After redemption from Egypt in the Exodus, Israel began the, pro- the conquest of the promised land. Similarly, similarly, after the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross, Jesus moved his people forward to conquer the world in his name. Joshua and Acts are, in many ways, parallel books. Do you see the connection? So after uh, the redemption in Egypt, in Exodus, in the Exodus, Israel begins the conquest of the land. So this is sort of a, happens in a spiritual way in the book of Acts as they preach the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Conquest. Israel's early inherit, earthly inheritance was eventually lost as a result of their, of their sin. But the kingdom of God promised to us, the church, is a spiritual kingdom which can never be lost because it is secured by God himself. Somebody read John 18, 36. So we also hear this similar themes in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 38. Sin could separate, separate the Israelites from the land, and it eventually did, but nothing can separate us from our spiritual inheritance 
a new Jerusalem which is coming down from heaven. We can never again be exiled. Why? Tim, thoughts? Okay. Well, can you hold the question? All right, so first we'll get to this, and we'll get to your question next. Why is it that we can never be uh, exiled from the kingdom of God? Good, that is true. Why? I'm good, you're right. Keep going. Why is it that nothing? He paid the penalty, which was what? Past, present, and future. But what I'm getting at is he died on the cross as a covenant breaker. He was exiled on the cross. Remember what he said from the cross? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's exile. That's exile language. And so Jesus is exiled on the cross. And so we can enjoy the promises of the book of Romans that nothing will or can separate us from the love of God, key point, in Christ. In Christ. See, if you are not in Christ, if you are not united to Christ by faith, then you will suffer the penalty of exile. I will suffer the penalty of exile. But if we are in Christ, united to him by faith, then Jesus has already been exiled, and there's a permanent home place for us in the kingdom of God. John 14, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, then you will be with me, you will come to myself, and, the, and there's eternal life in the kingdom of God. You see? It's all those themes are connected across Old and New Testaments. Tim, you had a question? Yes, that's a good point. Tim is asking, is it possible that Israel's exile from the land paralyze, uh, uh, parallels Adam and Eve's exile from the garden? Now, I've got thoughts, but what, are you, what do you think? Do you think that's a reasonable parallel? I see some nods. Why do you, why do you think so? What are some of the similarities there? So, yeah, good. So there's, there's temporal consequences for their covenant breaking, both Adam and Eve and the nation of Israel who sinned in the land. And yet, God's grace is not annulled. God makes a provision for them. God made a provision for Adam and Eve. Remember, he said, uh, there will be one, uh, you will have an offspring. Your offspring will uh, crush Satan's head. Satan will bite his heel. We have this image of provision of God providing uh, the animal skins to clothe Adam and Eve. Uh, we have God's faithfulness to the Israelites, even amongst the 
the exilic community in Babylon. We have the return of God's people in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. So, yeah, I think that's a great, great insight. Great parallel, Tim. Thanks. Okay, let's keep rolling here. I'll keep my eye on the clock. Okay, next theme is God's warrior. The conquest of the earthly kingdom came by the hand of Joshua, who was God's warrior. The conquest of the heavenly kingdom comes by the hand of Jesus, who is God's warrior. Do you see? Now, here's an interesting note. Did you know that Joshua and Jesus are the same name? The name uh, Jesus is the Greek rendering of the Hebrew named jo- name Joshua from the root Yasha, which means to save. Yeshua, Yasha, to save, the Savior. So it's not surprising that we find a lot of parallels between Joshua, Yeshua, and Jesus, Yeshua. Okay, God's warrior. Now here's an interesting question. Did Joshua ever meet Jesus, and if so, when? Ah, so Joshua did meet Jesus when he met the warrior. Let's read that story. Such a cool story. Joshua 5, 13 through 15. Somebody read that nice and loud. So what are some indications that this might have been a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, God's ultimate divine warrior meeting God's shadow divine warrior or uh, typical divine warrior? He allowed himself to be worshipped. When people in the Bible meet angels and it's just an angel, oftentimes they're so overwhelmed by the presence of the angel that they fall down and worship them. And if it's an angel, what does the angel always say? Stand up. I'm an angel. Stop doing this. You're committing a sin. What does this guy say? Commander of the army of the Lord. Yeah, he receives the worship and he says what, Judy? Because the place where you're standing is holy ground. Does that ring any bells for you? What, when was another time when we heard similar language like that in the Bible? The burning bush, where God, in the burning bush, tells Moses, take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy ground. Isn't that cool? That the two Joshuas in the Bible, the two Yeshuas, actually meet one another on earth. That is so cool. All right, next theme is promised rest. Joshua was leading Israel into their inheritance, into their rest. Somebody read Joshua 1.13.
Good. And somebody read Joshua 21, 44. So rest. He promised rest. He delivered the rest. But the rest the Israelites received was temporary at best. Throughout their history, the Israelites were repeatedly at war with their neighbors. Eventually, their defeat was complete, and they were exiled to Babylon. Now contrast that with the promised rest that comes to us as Christians. Somebody read 1 Peter 3, 1, th- 1 verses 3 through 5. Rest, rest, inheritance. Jesus would provide the rest that Joshua could not ultimately provide. We read about that in Hebrews 4, 1 through 11. Somebody read the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 4. So great. So we enter into the rest of God, rest from sin, rest from our enemies, rest from our own sin that we commit, rest from the sin that is committed against us. We enter into that rest through Jesus, Yeshua, the greater Joshua. All right, conclusion. The book of Joshua shows us that God, the divine warrior, intervenes for his people, giving them an inheritance and rest. As a result of sin, that inheritance was lost, and the people failed to have permanent or everlasting rest. Are we better than they are? Haven't we all promised that the Lord our God we will serve, and by his voice we will obey, only to find ourselves repeatedly mired in sin? Are we doomed to live lives of constant turmoil, or will we one day find the promised rest of eternal life and peace with God? The promised rest for God's people now comes to us through faith in Jesus, a Joshua who could do more than hold out the prospect of salvation. Jesus secured salvation by paying the price for our covenant-breaking on the cross. We take hold of this salvation that he has secured for us by faith. Somebody read Hebrews verses, chapter 11, verses 30, 31, and 39 through 40.
That something better is the completed work of Jesus Christ. He gave his life to win the battle, not over armies of Canaanites, but over sin and death itself. His victory secured not a man-made city that was repeatedly conquered, but a heavenly city. The rest he gives is not temporary. The rest he gives is eternal. Well, that's the book of Joshua. Any questions for us here as we wrap up soon? Book of Joshua. What do you think? Mm, that's a good good point. Did y'all hear that? He said, we're not any better than, than them, but we are better off. Amen. Very true. Thanks, Frank. Hmm. All right. Well, next week, come back. We're going to loop back around to do Deuteronomy. Sorry for the out of order, and David does send his apologies, but thank you for praying for Kim and for Laura and their whole families. They, they mourn the death and celebrate the life of Laura's grandmother, faithful Christian woman who is in heaven today uh, because she has now entered into that rest. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the divine warrior, that you fight our battles, that in this world of chaos and confusion, we have security and peace and rest through Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord God, that it is not ultimately up to us to secure that rest for ourselves, but that you have done everything, all the things that we could not do. We thank you, Lord God, that you use imperfect people, sinful people like Joshua, who was not a perfect person by any stretch of the imagination, and yet through your Spirit, you do remarkable and good things. We pray that we would have the optimism of Joshua and Caleb, an optimism not rooted in our own abilities and our own plans, but an optimism rooted in the promises that you have made to us, which are yes and amen in Jesus. Hear our prayers. We thank you for the Bible. We pray that we would be avid readers of your word, not merely to fill, fill our minds with information, but that our hearts might be transformed as your spirit works through this book in our hearts. Give us faith, the faith of Joshua. Give us the life that only Jesus can bring. In his name we pray, amen. Thanks, guys. We'll see you in worship. Hey, thank you.